I forgot my water jug this morning, so hopefully I don't dry up like I usually do. The uh, And today we begin the book of Zechariah, uh, following Haggai that we studied last week, maybe the last two weeks. Get organized here. I'm trying to figure out why you guys are so blurry. There we go. All right. All right. Um, and and so as we transition into Zechariah, because uh, uh, Haggai that we just studied and Zechariah were so they were they were preaching at the same time, uh, and uh, uh, and you see that in the dates. You know when we look at the, uh, Zechariah, like Haggai, gives uh, very specific details on the dates of their prophecy. We look back at. Haggai, remember, uh, started off in the first verse of Haggai chapter 1 where it said, uh, In the sixth month of the first day of the month, in the second year of King Darius, so second year of King Darius, or Darius, right? Uh, the first day of the month of the sixth month. And then, you know, when you look in Zechariah, the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Um, and And so... Uh, they were contemporaries, and uh, both of the books uh, uh, have the same purpose. Uh, both the prophet Haggai and Zechariah had the same purpose, and that was build the temple, uh, get to work on building the temple. And uh, uh, but as we will discuss, uh, we're going to do a little comparison and contrast between the prophets Haggai and Zechariah on the style of communication, and uh, and then maybe even we'll talk a little bit about examining the style of our communication uh, because I have certainly been examining the style of my communication uh, in reading these two prophets. Uh, so I want to start off with a couple of things. Uh, one, to keep us focused all the way from the very beginning. So I'm just going to read it again in Ephesians chapter 4. Repetition increases retention by 80%. Precisely. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, a very, very important passage for us. Oh, ask and ye shall receive. Thank you, Jerry. And I said that because I was already drying up. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, in, in laying the foundation for this class, for those of you who missed it, uh, <clears throat> we talked about uh, uh, the prophets and how their writings were beneficial to us even today. And we saw here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, and beginning with verse 11, And he himself, talking about Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and that's what that's our focus here, some evangelists, some pastors, which are elders, and teachers, which are, for the most part, down the hall right now teaching uh, our kids and, uh, and those things. Um, and every time I say that word teacher in the context of our spiritual development, uh, I think about uh, 
Matthew chapter 23 and 8 where uh, it says, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. And of course, that doesn't mean we don't have any teachers, right? Um, it just uh, it was a warning against seeking titles of honor to foster pride. Uh, and so uh, I'm not even sure if I'm if anyway, I, I, I see myself as trying to influence uh, the brethren uh, to be uh, more excited and enthusiastic and interested in the word of God and in our unity. Uh, and that's why I emphasize unity so much. Uh, we know that the word, you know, we, we gather for communion. Acts 20 and verse 7 tells us that's the main purpose for our coming together on the first day of the week. And that word commune means together. And the corporate unity of God's children goes all the way back to the very beginning and how uh, you can look at account after account, historical account throughout all of the Old Testament and then through the New and up to our day today where God holds his children uh, accountable uh, in, in many ways with, with a corporate unity. Uh, so our unity was important to him. We see that throughout the scriptures and then uh, Revelation, where the churches together are being held accountable, the seven churches, right, uh, for, uh, you know, for faith uh, or for lack of faith in, in some of those cases. Uh, but we are deeply concerned about our corporate unity. And we see here that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets that we're studying this quarter, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give them? Why are we reading in Ephesians that New Testament Christians should be interested in the prophets? And it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we're being equipped. Uh, the prophets have a role and a purpose in equipping us. And so that's why we're studying those lessons and 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 looking at ways to examine ourselves in in the light of the example of the prophets and applying those lessons to our lives and it is exciting and uh, it's something that we can and must be enthusiastic about and each time you read one of the minor prophets uh you will find new and exciting ways to apply those lessons to us to you individually and to us in our corporate unity uh, that God is certainly interested in. Because it says here, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So the prophets have a role in our unity and in our knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, and so these things are certainly very important to us. So Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries. They're both preaching at the same time, and they had the same message with different styles of communication. And it's more, it's, uh, it, you know, there's more to it than that, but that's just kind of, I'm giving you kind of an overview, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, like we said before, when you communicate, you want to have an attention step, uh, an overview, some motivation, establish your objective or your thesis, and our objective is those things that we just talked about from Ephesians chapter 4, applying lessons of the prophets to our lives today. Um, all right. And it's going to be important to remember from Haggai in the first chapter where it says, uh, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah. And, and then it says some others there, it also came to Joshua, uh, the high priest, uh, and to the remnant of the people that, uh, that Haggai was communicating to, to, uh, to rebuke, uh, which we see in both Haggai and Zechariah, and to motivate and encourage. And we focused on both of those elements. Haggai, we'll look at them uh, in Zechariah. So today, uh, what I want to do is lay some uh, foundation uh, I say lay some foundation. You know, uh, it's, it would just, it's hard. It's difficult to teach the minor prophets in a quarter because, uh, uh, I've been going over the material, uh, to, uh, uh, to teach Zechariah this today for, what, 40 minutes. And I've been going over that for, for the past week, a little bit more than that. And, uh, and I'm like, so, you know, on my schedule, I've got two Sundays, two Sunday mornings, about 40 minutes each time to teach Zechariah. And I could just so easily take Zechariah and, and teach just Zechariah for a quarter, right? So it's difficult uh, narrowing the information down and deciding what to include, you know. Uh, so, so what I need to do is just lay a little bit of, of a foundation for our two-class study of Zechariah, okay? Um, and so this, remember, always cite your sources, right? This, this is, I'm not the source, uh, but I wouldn't stand up here and convey anything to you that was wrong. So uh, just a little bit out of the beginning of the chapter of Zechariah from this. Uh, Mike Sherrill used the NASB, so I went and got one so I could follow him easier with the, the scriptures he was using. I get confused when I'm using a different Bible version than what the preacher has. So uh, the occasion and purpose. The occasion is the same as that of the book of Haggai. The chief purpose of Zechariah and Haggai was to rebuke the people of Judah and to encourage and motivate them to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. And just as a refresher from last week, because we need to connect uh, the lessons from the, the weeks that we're studying. Uh, so we talked about the importance of the temple uh, to the worship of their time. We talked about how critical that was to their identity and their existence. And then we considered moving forward into the New Testament how our worship, our form of worship now, and our current day temple are essential, are critical to our identity and our existence as children of God. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16. And already someone who missed the class like last week is saying, what? This guy's talking about the importance of the temple today? Okay, hang on. In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then it goes on to say, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Wow. A lot to think about right there, right? Tuesday afternoon at 2.35, you need to be just as aware of this fact as you are right now in this moment here in this place, right? So don't forget that. You are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, 
God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple are us? Okay. And also Thursday at 11 p.m. this week. Okay. Need to always be aware of that and cognizant of that fact. And then Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2. And beginning with verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. And uh, I referenced us to John fifteen fifteen on that point, right? But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that corporate unity we talked about. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, that's us, that's the church in Ephesus and the church in Anchorage, right? In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And in the two passages we just looked at, I didn't emphasize the Spirit, but you caught it. And, uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna return to that when we're talking about the Spirit in Zechariah and the work of the Spirit in Zechariah. And we're gonna remind ourselves of the work of the Spirit now with us. The purpose of the eight night visions that we'll talk about that you already read about. Remember, uh, I'm always up here operating under the assumption that you read the book that we're going to be studying together uh, before we studied it. So um, the Lord said that if Judah would return to him, he would return to them. Furthermore, his word would continue to be fulfilled. Okay, so we're laying the foundation for our two week, two class study of Zechariah. The historical setting. Oh, and this is from uh, Brother uh, in Christ. Uh, and I don't know where he worships. Uh, I think Tennessee or wherever Eddie Clower is at, because Eddie's the general editor of these commentaries that I that I got through the church office here. That Judy lets you know when they're where uh, you should have these. They're really good information for the historical context and and connecting the scriptures throughout the Bible and everything. But uh, Coy D. Roper, Ph.D gives a historical setting for Zechariah and says, The books of Zechariah and Haggai have the same historical background. Both prophets had as their primary mission to motivate the returned exiles to complete the rebuilding of the temple. The Jews who had returned from captivity... It's really warm up here. The Jews who had returned from captivity about 538 B.C. had laid the foundation of the temple about 536 B.C. Then they stopped building because of opposition from the people of the land. Um, and we're going to look at that in Ezra, back from the book of Ezra. Remember, I think it's, it's been a couple of years ago we studied Ezra and Nehemiah and we talked about that. At the urging of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and with the blessing of the Persian rulers, they began again about 520 B.C., and finally completed the work around 516 B.C. This means that Haggai and Zechariah, unlike most of the prophets, successfully accomplished their objective. And I want us to look at, uh, there is an excellent uh, kind of a summary of uh, 
the Lord's temple and, and its history. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to read that uh, because, you know, I tried to look at it enough to paraphrase it uh, and to, you know, just articulate this, but uh, I, there's just no way that I can do a better job with this than Coy Roper did. So uh, if you'll bear with me, uh, I'm going to read this to you. To more fully appreciate, oh, and, and uh, if you get this commentary, uh, the Minor Prophets 3 uh, that has Zechariah and Malachi, uh, you'll find this on page 336 toward the back. To more fully appreciate the roles played by Haggai and Zechariah, it is helpful to survey the history of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. Okay, from 960 to 586 B.C., David captured Jerusalem, Jabus at the time, and it became the capital of his kingdom around 1000 B.C. About 960 B.C., Solomon completed the first temple in Jerusalem. This was the place of God's presence where feasts were held and various offerings were made. The kingdom of Israel divided in 930 B.C. After this time, prophets came, warning the people and prophesying of captivities. In 722 B.C., the northern tribes, which made up Israel, went into Assyrian captivity. The southern tribes, which comprised Judah, clung to the idea that Jerusalem and the temple would never fall. Because of rebellion and worship of idols, Judah and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. The people were taken to Babylon, but God promised that a remnant would return. And that, you know, I tremble every time I see or hear the word idols because it immediately causes me to examine myself and to to consider what our idols are today. But we don't have any. There's no little statue of a god, you know, it's really nothing more than a piece of wood with some carving on it or a rock in my house. But uh, what are the things in my life that draw my attention away from God and his word and from this Christian family, right? Because those are the things in God's, uh, that in God's will that we're, we're concerned about, uh, the things of God. But there are so many things of the world that pull us away. Uh, I, heard on the, I heard on the car radio driving to work the other day that the average person, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, I, I don't think I believe this. I don't think, I don't, I don't I just, you be the judge. <laughs> but on the radio, they said there, uh, that uh, the average adult uh, looks at their phone four to five hours a day. And I kind of chuckled, right? Four to five hours a day, you know. I just don't know. I think if that were true, everyone would have been fired. The Anchorage would have, I mean, I guess it was a national thing, but like we'd all be unemployed. Although I do see people looking at their phone a lot of work. Okay, I'm sorry. That's a, uh, what you call that? Uh, got off on a tangent. Um, from 586 to 537 B.C., during the time of captivity in Babylon, there was no temple and therefore no way for the people to worship God according to the law. It was during this period that Daniel and Ezekiel prophesied. In 539 B.C., Babylon was defeated by the Persians. Cyrus 
as prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 44 and 28 and uh, 45 and 1, released the captives, issuing a proclamation that the temple should be rebuilt and even made provisions for its funding, Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 through 6. He also returned the sacred vessels that the Babylonians had taken from the temple. We see that in Ezra chapter 1 and verses 7 through 11. At this time, the first group of exiles returned to the vicinity of Jerusalem. From 536 to 516 B.C., on the same location as Solomon's temple, an altar was built so that God could once again be worshipped in Jerusalem. The foundation for a new temple was laid, but the work stopped due to opposition and discouragement. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah spoke to the people for God, urging them to finish building the temple. Those who worked on the reconstruction project were directed by Zerubbabel, a leader chosen by God. We see from Haggai chapter 2 and verse 23. The people who had seen the first temple were disappointed with the results. Uh, we see that in Haggai 2 and 3. And then we also read there in Haggai where God said, don't worry about that. Build the temple and I will fill it with glory. Okay. Those who worked on the reconstruction project were, were directed by Zerubbabel. Uh, the people who had seen the first temple were disappointed with the results, but Haggai made an ambiguous promise that it would have a latter glory. And we're going to, uh, or we saw that in Haggai 2.9. From 516 to 520 B.C., the temple was completed. Many later referred to it as Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple. While this temple was similar to Solomon's in size, the grandeur was comparatively lacking. Nevertheless, God's presence once again could dwell in the midst of his people in his chosen city, and they could worship him there. Through the remnant in Judah, the Messiah eventually came into the world. From 20 B.C. through 70 A.D., the second temple lasted for nearly 500 years, more than 100 years longer than Solomon's temple. In 20 B.C., Herod began a renovation which piece by piece replaced the entire temple. The new structure is often referred to as Herod's Temple. It is also known as the second temple, even though technically speaking, it was the third. Herod also expanded the temple mount, nearly doubling its size. This renovation and expansion of the temple mount was still ongoing during the life of Christ. And we see that in John chapter 2 and verse 20. The project was not completed until the A.D. 60s, just a few years before it was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And so we have the historical setting. And so we understand the objective of Zechariah uh, being the same as that of Haggai, but with a different style of communication that we'll focus mostly on next week. Haggai and Zechariah went about their task differently. Haggai approached the subject directly using plain language. It is time to build God's temple. Zechariah presented the message indirectly by uttering words of comfort. And let's look at Zechariah 1 and 13. In Zechariah 1 and 13, And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, uh, and then he continues on there. 
Now, um, Zechariah's primary message in chapters 1 through 8 is contained in several uh, night visions that he had. Uh, And uh, I had to read those several times. Right. Because I understood the meaning of them that was given, but how they got these meanings from the visions that Zechariah had uh, was a challenge for me. Uh, And I hope it was for you as well. (laughs) Because we need to struggle with God's Word. Uh, uh, Even these things. So what I want to do is look at uh, the vision and uh, and give the meaning for each one and then back up and look at the meaning of each of the visions alone, right? So one, the first vision, a vision of a man on a red horse with three other horses which patrolled the earth and saw the nations at rest. And that's in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, meant that God would cause the temple to be rebuilt. The second vision, a vision of four horns and four craftsmen who cast down the horns. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. This indicated that the nations which had overcome Judah were to be overcome. And we'd seen that in previous uh, of the Minor Prophets books that we read. The third vision, a vision of a man with a measuring line, in chapter 2 and 1 through 13, revealed that Jerusalem would be inhabited again, and God would care for her. The fourth vision, a vision of Joshua the high priest in dirty clothes, chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, and this illustrated that the priesthood was to be cleansed, the people would be forgiven, and the land would be prosperous. The fifth vision, a vision of a lampstand of gold, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 14, and this meant that Zerubbabel would get the job done, for he and Joshua were the Lord's anointed. The sixth vision, a vision of a flying scroll, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, declared that sin must be punished. And the seventh vision, a vision of an epaph with iniquity in it, in chapters five, chapter 5 and verses 5 through 11, portrayed wickedness, uh, portrayed returning to Babylon as wickedness. A vision of four chariots in the eighth version, patrolling the earth, in chapter 6 and 1 through 8, showed that God is always in control and watches over his people. And we read about that in Acts when uh, Paul was preaching at the Areopagus. God has already determined the boundaries uh, and, uh, and he's in control. Uh, so, you know, if you watch the news, uh, which I don't recommend generally. And, you know, I'll give you a little background on that. Uh, uh, back in uh, 2005, I had some medical problems and ended up with my very own cardiologist, who I still have, right, and also a neurologist. And uh, the cardiologist told me, uh, gave me uh, several several things that I needed to do to reduce my stress. And one of them was don't watch the news anymore. Uh, and uh, and so I listened to him. And guys, I can't tell you how much more pleasant my life got after I stopped watching the news. Uh, and even some of the types of news that that I had been tuned into uh, would call would cause me in my mind 
uh, would cause divisions between me and my brethren, right? Um, because when, when you identify with some of those things that you connect with through worldly news, right, uh, and the sides that you choose and the opinions that you, you know, uh, then, then you become capable of identifying uh, things in your brethren uh, that, that, that you begin to feel opposed to. And, uh, uh, and it's a source of contentions and divisions. So that's why, you know, uh, I'm a Christian. That's, that's my identity. So anyway, another tangent. Um, God is always in control and watches over his people. Uh, so now I'm going to go back. And, uh, and so we've covered the actual vision, right, um, that, that we all need to continue to study. But I'm just going to read what the visions mean, each of them. Uh, and so since we've already identified that Zechariah... Uh, had a different style of communication in his message, which was basically the same message, build the temple, right? Resume the construction of the temple, get to work, roll up your sleeves, get to work, right? Um, and so I want you to to kind of focus on the encouragement here and on the comfort from the word of God in the message of Zechariah and maybe think about how these things apply to us now. God would cause the temple to be rebuilt. The nations which had overcome Judah were to be overcome. Jerusalem would be inhabited again, and God would care for her. The priesthood was to be cleansed, the people would be forgiven. And the land would be prosperous. Zerubbabel would get the job done, for he and Joshua were the Lord's anointed. Sin must be punished. Wickedness uh, is portrayed here as returning to Babylon. And God is always in control and watches over his people. And so each of those... Uh, comforting points uh, each in and of themselves could be the subject of individual sermons and probably more than one the richness of the word of God so the first one God would cause the temple to be rebuilt God would cause that and you know when you look here in Zechariah and you go to chapter 4 And verse 6 and 7 will be our focus, but uh, I'll back up to, to verse 1 in chapter 4 where it said, uh, this is the vision of the lampstand and the olive trees. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. One by the right and the bowl of the bowl and the other on its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. 
So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Uh, obviously, a man very involved in the finishing of the temple. Not by my, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. There in verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, the spirit of God. And so the point that I wanted to make there, going back to uh, what we had read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. And then in Ephesians. They're, uh, they're rebuilding the temple, these guys, back then, right? They needed some motivation. And along come Haggai and, and uh, Zechariah with, with rebuke and with motivation and encouragement and comfort. And there has been talk recently in our own time you know, we got to compare the there and then to the here and now. There's a word for that that I can't remember right now. Uh, but uh, so what are we rebuilding, if anything? But anyway, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then in Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at uh, the temple. In whom, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So that spirit keeps coming up, keeps popping up. Uh, and then we go back to Zechariah and talking about uh, in, in a book with prophecy dedicated to motivating the people to get to work, roll up their sleeves and rebuild the temple. It says, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the question that comes to mind is, what is the difference between the spirit of God at work there in our reading of Zechariah, what is the difference between the Spirit of God there and the Spirit of God here, now, in rebuilding whatever needs to be rebuilt? Not by might nor power, but by my Spirit. You know, it kind of reminded me of a... Uh, and, and you've probably heard this too, where... Uh, there was a large congregation down south somewhere and, uh, uh, had a lot of elders, had, uh, you know, 13 or 14 elders. And when they met, they sat in a circle. They arranged the tables in a large fellowship hall in a circle. Um, and then so they all sat down and they had hired a new youth minister, uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, very enthusiastic, a D1 on that, uh, the Hersey and Blanchard, uh, developmental scale of, of, uh, the model of leadership there. Super highly enthusiastic comes in, uh, presents to the, the 13 or 14 elders seated in this circle a big problem with the youth 
and, and the families of the congregation that needed uh, immediate attention, and he had a big plan laid out to accomplish this and everything, and said, okay, let's have a quick prayer, and then we'll get started on attacking this problem. And you guys already know where I'm going with this, right? Hmm. Got a big problem in the church. The elders are gathered with a new youth minister, and let's have a quick prayer, and then pay, pay attention to the problem, Right? So the elder seated nearest him on this side looked at the men in the circle and just made a motion with his hand and then bowed their heads and and he started a prayer and then as he it was obvious by his tone that he was wrapping up his prayer the youth minister is sitting there thinking that was kind of a long prayer uh, because we've got our time is limited, and I've really got to we've really got to focus on this problem. And so, he's, as as that the first elder wrapped uh, wrapped up his prayer, the youth minister looked up and started started like he was going to talk, and then the second elder started praying. It went the same way. All the way around that circle. And that's all they did. And then, when the last elder said his prayer, he bumped the youth minister, who oh, said a prayer. And then they got up and they put their coats on and they left. And that's what they did. And then later on they were able to address the problem that they, they had. So, uh, we don't come together and say, let's have a quick prayer uh, so we can get on to the business at hand, right? Uh, and and if we do that, then we don't understand prayer. We don't under, understand the concept, and we just need to study it more. We need to to be taught more. And we've been talking about about prayer too, some throughout the quarter. So, okay. Um. So in Zechariah chapter four. And uh, 1 through 7 here, uh, in verse 6, we see where uh, the word of the Lord to, to Zerubbabel was not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, and in verse 7, it goes on to say, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. Um, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace grace to it so in verse 7 there the mountain shall become a plain faith in the power of God's spirit can overcome mountainous obstacles there's been some talk recently of of rebuilding things here just uh you know kind of moving back toward uh, a state of normalcy uh, which we're all involved in. Uh, but man, there have been some wonderful things going on recently. Uh, we talk about our corporate unity, uh, which involvement, uh, uh, and you know, makes me think of Hebrews 10 and, and uh, 24 and 25 there where it says, uh, don't forsake the assembly as a manner of some is, right? Uh, so, you know, we don't want to do that. But I mean, uh, as God's children, it's just like me as a father and my relationship with my children, I want them to want to be together as often as they can. That's a very important thing for any father. 
the, the desire to have their children want to be together. And, uh, and it's no different with God. In fact, you know, God gave us our own families at home as a model for what he expects from his church. Um, and there have been some wonderful things going on recently. Uh, we had uh, uh, Charles, that's uh, Charles Kelly over there, in case anyone didn't see him, right? And Nell. Uh, you know, recently we had a camping trip to uh, Eklutna, and uh, uh, you guys remember all the work of the 1849ers, and before that we were called some other kind of a group, but we had a camping trip uh, that was a wonderful time, a weekend spent there, some some spent uh, three nights and some spent two. Uh, we had a barbecue that was uh, planned as an outdoor event. Uh, there was a big barbecue, and, and they ended up coming inside because it was raining some, so we served the food in here and had wonderful fellowship and time to get together and got to know one another better and grew together in Christ. And you think about, you know, the past year and a half that we've had without these things. Uh, man, it was like rain falling on a desert. It was so wonderful. And then yesterday we had a back to school kind of thing over here where uh, all the kids came in and they got uh, a surprise for their backpacks. So they brought their backpacks uh, to get something in it to, to for going back to school. Uh, and then they played a game that was awesome, had wonderful fellowship, and there was a whole bunch of adults with parents and grandparents and even some people who didn't have kids uh, at the thing, right? Uh, and then we all came in here and had a an excellent devotional that Russ gave us and then uh, kind of came together in a circle and the elders prayed for the kids and their faith, you know, so. There are so many wonderful things going on that <clears throat> that are just so good to see, you know. After the year that we've had, uh, and another wonderful thing that's going on, uh, Jay is preaching this morning at the worship service, and this evening, um, JJ is preaching the evening service, uh, and so. If you don't plan, if you if you don't already have plans to be here for that, uh, then change your plans. Uh, unless you really have, you know, uh, unless there's, uh, uh, you know, if you have to work, maybe you're a cop or you drive an ambulance or something. That's understandable. You can't miss your shift. But uh, if you don't already have plans to be here, uh, that you're already here today. But if you don't have plans to be here this evening, uh, like Jimmy Jividen would say, repent. Right. And uh, and just be here. Uh, uh, wonderful fellowship and all these opportunities and things that are that are coming back when you hear language from from different areas about man we need to rebuild the congregation and uh, uh, we know that we're still here but uh, uh, but we do need to 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 continue to do what the elders are saying and their encouragement uh, just like Zechariah here uh, the encouragement to. Uh, uh, to continue to, to strengthen the congregation and, and to focus on our unity. Very important things. Faith in the power of God's Spirit can overcome mountainous obstacles. Uh, the figurative mountain for them included the opposition that they faced. Uh, we'll look at Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1 through 5. I think we just have like a couple minutes, right? In Ezra chapter 4... And verse 1 through 5, 
And we've already talked some when we were in Haggai about the opposition they faced around them when, when the exiles had returned, when the remnant had returned. Um, but in Ezra chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord our God of Israel. There's a lesson in there about being or not being equally yoked. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Uh, and so uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up with that and continue there next week and talk more about the encouragement. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the time given us this morning to focus on a portion of your word and continue our study of these minor prophets. Thank you, Father, for the lessons that we glean from uh, from their their work and their writings. And help us, Father, to continue to, to study your word diligently, to prepare for these lessons, and uh, and to, to look for, for ways constantly to apply them to our lives as individuals in our corporate unity. And thank you most of all, Father, for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.